Commission on Civil Rights shall come to order. Before we begin today's meeting, I would like to take a moment and acknowledge the original caretakers of the land we reside on. While many of us are logging in from across the state, I will be recognizing the community in what we now call Nevada. This area is the traditional land of New Lodi, Washoe, Shoshone, and Paiute people, and many other indigenous communities. We acknowledge the generations of indigenous communities who have cared for this land, and for that, we extend our respect and gratitude to them. Now I'd like to invite Angelica Trevino, Fourth Specialist at the Commission, to assist with roll call. Committee members, if you are joining by phone, please press star six to unmute yourself and star six to put yourself back on mute until I call on you during Q&A. Angelica? Certainly, I'll begin with you, Chairperson Wendell Blaylock. I'm present. Thank you. Michael Bowers? Sandra Crossgrove? Here. Thank you. Anna Thelton? Here. Thank you. Carol Del Carlo? I'm here. Thank you. David Edible? Deborah Feemster? David Fott? Here. Thank you. Augusta Massey? I'm here. Thank you. Teresa Navarro? Rudy Pamintuan? And David Sexton? That completes roll call. Thank you, Angelica. I, I believe Welcome. I saw David Edelblut and Teresa sign in, so they may be on mute. Also present is Anna Victoria Fortes, who is our designated federal official. I'd now like to introduce from the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, Commissioner David Cladney. Welcome, Commissioner. Thank you, Chair Blaylock, and thank you, Vice Chair Cosgrove and committee members. I hope you are all doing well as we are hopefully getting to the end of this horrific time in our history. The pandemic has destroyed so, so many lives. As I've said here before, state advisory committees can really affect issues in their states. The issue you're taking up today can really affect the entire country. Uh, there have not been that many studies done on distant learning. Today, you all are tackling an issue of great importance. Uh, pandemic distant learning has created a myriad of problems throughout our educational system. From single moms trying to keep a home afloat and teaching their kids, to married couples who are both out of work but can't assist in remedial reading, algebra, and the like. Student socialization is the most important role of education and that has been missing in the last year. 
Like many, I don't have any solutions for these problems. Your work will be inspiring and you may develop standards and mitigations going forward that allow our students to attain the educational levels necessary to succeed in school and subsequently in life. Thank you for your service in this unique time in our history, and thank you for taking on this difficult subject. Mr. Chair, thank you very much. Thank you, Commissioner. Thank you, Commissioner Cladney. The U.S. Commission on Civil Rights is an independent, bipartisan agency of the federal government charged with studying discrimination or denial of equal protection of the laws because of race, color, religion, sex, age, disability, or national origin, or in the administration of justice. In each of the 50 states and the District of Columbia, an advisory committee to the commission has been established and they are made up of bipartisan persons who serve without compensation to advise the Commission on relevant information concerning their respective states. Today is the first in a series of five web hearings examining equity and education during the COVID-19 pandemic, especially among students in K-16 schools with disabilities and students of color while they are distance learning. We know it has been a challenging year and many have been involved in ensuring that students are still receiving their education. So we plan to hear from a range of experts throughout these web hearings who will offer their unique perspectives and recommendations. Based on this information collected through testimony, the committee will draft a report that will include findings and recommendations that will be shared with the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. The commission will then forward those recommendations to the appropriate federal and state entities. I'd like to share that at the outset, this meeting is being recorded for the public record and the web hearing recording will be available on our public database. Please contact Anna Fortes, that's A-F-O-R-C-E-S, at usccr.gov if you wish to obtain those records. Today, we will hear from state leaders who will provide a status update on the state's efforts and their perspectives on how distance education has impacted our Nevada students. Presenters, please aim to stay within 10 to 15 minutes of your speaking time and reserve additional talking points for Q&A in case you are not able to address them within that time. After presentation, the committee will ask questions of the panelists and then we will go into public comments. Please note that the Q&A session is reserved for committee members only. We invite members of the public to use the chat box located at the bottom right on your screen to let us know if you would like to make a comment and share your perspective about the topic. With that said, let's begin today's meeting. 
We will hear from Joni Ebert, Superintendent, Nevada State Board of Education, Brian Mitchell, Director, Office of Science, Innovation, and Technology, Terry Morris, Director of E-Learning, College of Southern Nevada, and Melody Rose, Chancellor, Nevada System of Higher Education. Due to another engagement, there will be a Q&A session for the committee following Superintendent Ebert's presentation. At this time, I'd like to invite Superintendent Ebert to begin. Just like the kids, sometimes you need to remember to unmute. <laughs> Good afternoon, uh, Chair Blaylock, honorable members of the committee. Thank you for having me here today. I'm Joan Ebert, State Superintendent of Public Instruction for the Nevada Department of Education. I was appointed by Governor Sisolak in April of 2019 to lead the department. I'm very proud to do so. And again, thank you for inviting me to be part of your work related to equity in education, something that is extremely close to my heart and the core of the work we do for our students every single day. As you can see here, we have listed our values. When I returned home to Nevada, we have a requirement that we are to create a step, a state improvement plan. And we knew that we could not begin that work without visiting every single school district in our state, as well as our state public charter school authority. And if you can see all of our values here, but the foundation of the work that we do and of our strategic plan, equity is the cornerstone and we define it was so great to hear the definition this morning we define equity to mean that the learning needs of every student are supported in an environment where all students are valued respected see themselves in their curriculum and instructional materials while experiencing academic success without regard to differences in age gender socioeconomic status religion, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, ability, native language, national origin, or citizenship status. We also like to use the term opportunity gaps rather than achievement gaps, because especially in our times like this, during a pandemic, we need to stop thinking about how students can perform better to meet our expectations and instead focus on how we can meet every child every day and support them in their learning. Before I get into the details of our COVID-19 response, I wanted to share this brief overview of the timeline from the first building closures to the beginning of the 2021 school year. Through the work of our amazing department staff and the unwavering dedication of district and school leaders, our teachers, staff, families, we were able to quickly respond when the governor made the difficult decision to close school buildings in a little over a year ago. You can see the different executive actions, resources, and guidance memos 
that we put in place to support the health and safety of our students as well as the education as well as educational continuity. We were proud that 15 of our 16 school districts were open for in-person learning for some or all of the students in the beginning of the school year. And as of this week, and I'm really proud to say this, I was able to join the Clark County School District on Monday. All 17 of our school districts and the State Public Charter School Authority have some or all of their students learning on campus. This slide provides an overview of the priorities that guided our COVID-19 response, all related to equitable access to high quality teaching and learning. We separated our work into three main areas. What I call the first bucket, if you will, or area is the stuff bucket, it's devices and connectivity. The second being high quality professional learning for our educators, for our families, for ourselves and high quality instructional, instructional materials being the third area. Of course, equitable access to devices and connectivity were a major concern when the whole state shifted to distance learning last spring. And we said right from the start that one device per household was not enough. Our goal was one device for one student, every single child having a device and having connectivity. So the governor's COVID-19 private sector task force adopted bridging the digital divide for students and families as one of its priorities in the summer of 2020. And the partnership with the Elaine Wynn and Family Foundation, Communities and Schools, and the Public Education Foundation along with the task force launched Connecting Kids MV. At its launch in August, approximately 80% of our students did not have one or the other device or connectivity and they needed to participate in learning at a distance. And so thanks to the collective work of the department, the State Board of Education, my colleague here on uh, today, Brian Mitchell, the Governor's Office of Science, Innovation and Technology, Again, the school districts, talented partners, and most importantly, the re relief funding as well from the federal government. I am proud to report to you that every single school district is green on this map. Um, when we started, there was not one single school district that could say that 100% of their children that needed a device for learning at a distance had a device and had connectivity. Um, and today we are the only state in the nation that truly has that completed. Our devices are not on order. We're not hoping um, that students can have connectivity, but they have it because of the great work um, that has transpired in our state. So in addition to devices, it's important to make sure that our teachers uh, were connected and that they rallied together from every corner of our state to support our students and to support one another. Last year, the department launched the Nevada Digital Engineers 
which is a specialized team of educators, their teachers, their administrators. They were tasked with creating content and providing continued meaningful support to all of our stakeholders. They built capacity for distance learning statewide by providing virtual training and coaching to all of our stakeholders. In addition, our NDE staff began hosting weekly office hours for educators in different content areas, as you can see on this graphic. And we worked with Nevada's regional professional development programs to continue to identify and address the needs of, of professional learning for all of our staff. We're also very um, fortunate that we had public partner, private partnerships beyond the one in Connecting Kids. Uh, when we first spun up the digital, Nevada Digital Learning Collaborative and the website, uh, we needed to make sure that we had high quality content. And uh, Mayan uh, provided access for children across the entire state actually through this last December, um, and we've continued on beyond that, um, but provided access for every single child. We also were very fortunate that Nevada Gold Mines uh, stepped up to the plate and provided resources for discovery education. And those materials uh, are very important to all of us because we wanted to make sure that we had access to materials that were aligned to our expectations of the state that were provided in multiple languages that had um, a lens of diversity and equity. They had just launched their uh, social justice components and then also had resources for parents. Um, and that is how uh, Discovery Education met all of those, those needs. Also thankful to both PBS stations, uh, Vegas PBS as well as Reno, uh, provided educational materials, reprogrammed some of the resources that they had to make sure that there was high quality access, um, access to high quality materials. And I, I, the one piece too that I, I uh, want to mention is social emotional supports. Materials um, provided with the Discovery Education also have social emotional supports uh, for educators, families, and students. I don't know how to do anything alone. And so called up as many people um, as I could and, and started the engagement across um, all of this work. And one of the things is the state superintendent of public instruction, teacher voice matters. I am not in the classroom every single day. They are the ones that are closest to our students. So literally pulled together our teacher um, advisory cabinet and started meeting with them weekly to find out exactly uh, what was happening on the grounds. And actually they were the first ones to bring to me that the deployment of devices started with one device per family. And we knew that was not going to be su sufficient. Also worked with the Clark County Black Caucus, the city of Henderson, Teach Plus, United Way, all of those you see on the screen here to make sure that the support that we were providing was in alignment um, and so that, that those that we were serving didn't feel like they had to go all over the state to find and seek resources themselves, but they could do, go to one place and access um, all of these supports uh, that have been made available.
Also too, inclusivity of our student groups, um, very important during the school closures, making sure that they had access um, to these opportunities. And this includes uh, supporting our students most um, that have different uh, learning needs. Um, so our students that um, English is not their first language, our English language learners, um, our students that have individualized education plans, we wanted to make sure that they had continuity of learning. And so here is a sampling of the resources that were created by our Office of um, Student and School Supports and also our inclusive education team. Parents uh, and PTA, Nevada PTA, and all of those uh, uh, that have connections with families were critical uh, to this work. So in closing, I just wanna give you a high flyover of the three, I have blessed with three deputies that work with me um, in this work and collaborate to make sure that we move forward in a seamless manner. And so on this slide, what I would highlight here is that the Office of Safe and Respectful Learning Environment, the team, they received a $10.3 million grant for school-based mental health uh, supports. And the success of the grant application is due to collaboration. My colleague here, Chancellor Rose, um, her uh, universities that uh, were collaboratives with us, the Nevada State College, the University of Nevada, Reno, University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Also in collaboration of this work, most importantly, is the Nevada School Counselor Association, Nevada Association of School Social Workers, and Nevada Association of School Psychologists. Uh, this grant would not have been successful had we not brought together all of our partners uh, to make sure that we were cohesive and strategic uh, with these resources. Also to help alleviate the negative impact of COVID-19 on the licensing of educators, our Office of Licensure granted a six month extension to expiring licenses. And we're proud to celebrate that our office has accomplished now a 24 hour turnaround for anyone that applies for um, application to be licensed in our state. Uh, and that is, uh, it was a big accomplishment because I will tell you years ago, it would take months to uh, receive a license. And now that team has been extremely successful um, in their work. We have our business and support services division. They have uh, brought in and then allocated and worked with uh, the school districts and the state public charter school authorities. We are thankful for the ESSER funds that have been made available from the federal government, as well as the GEAR funds. Uh, we have ESSER uh, 2 now and GEAR 2, and we look forward to the additional funds um, that we hope will be made available, um, especially during this time of economic crisis during the pandemic. Our Student Achievement Office, uh, the Division of Student Achievement has five offices that work tirelessly, um, especially during the pandemic. Some of the key efforts here are the Nevada Report Card was update uh, to compare indicators across schools and view per pupil expenditures per federal law. 
the Office of Students School Support was also awarded a $2.6 million grant to expand access to career and technical education, uh, coursework, advanced placement, workplace learning activities uh, to our rural school districts, capitalizing off of the great work that has been across our state. We also know, um, and I know in the introductory comments, uh, we're talked about learning and learning loss and what has transpired during this pandemic. Uh, so on this next slide, we have the um, data that has been uh, shared. This is from uh, tracktherecovery.org. And you can see that at this point, we're at a K-shaped recovery. When looking at students from high, middle, and low income zip codes, while their progress on math achievement was most, you know, completely in alignment between January and March, uh, since the school building closures across the nation, students from our low income zip codes are making significantly less progress while students from, in, from high income zip codes are making more progress than ever before. So we know that there's a significant challenge ahead of us to address the ways that COVID-19 um, has exposed and worsened uh, some of our inequities that have existed for a while. They've shown the light on and, and unfortunately accelerated in some areas uh, that divide. And with the latest guidance from the U.S. Department of Education, uh, we know that we are required to administer and take stock into where our students are learning, where their learning is now. And we know that this um, resource, when we look at assessments as a tool, uh, it advances our equity agenda when we understand the data points and where our students are and where where we know they can be as we recover um, as a state. And so we stand ready to work with our national partners, our partners here in the state to meet that challenge. With that, I am thankful um, to be here again this afternoon, and I stand ready to take any questions that you may have. Thank you, Superintendent. I hear an echo. Before we move into Q&A, I'd like to remind members of the public that if you are interested in offering public comment following the Q&A session, Please raise your hand by hovering your mouse near your name or type in the chat to let staff know. We will add you to a list and we'll announce your name. We'll now move into Q&A for Superintendent Ebert. Uh, the chair recognizes Sandra Cosgrove. Thank you, Wendell. Thank you, Superintendent, for being with us today. Um, I, I am so glad that you had all this good information for us because I know just even a couple of months ago, you guys were starting from ground zero. So the amount of work you've done in a short period of time, kudos to you. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about, um, are the schools reaching out to parents? Because I know we talk about kids being in crisis, but I know their parents are really stressed and you know having their own uh, issues with mental health. 
Are the schools able to provide information so the parents know where they can get help? Thank you for the question and it is great to see you. The uh, schools themselves, what we have made sure is even, even though school buildings had been closed, the schools are open, they're just open differently. Um, and so collaborating with the Department of Health and Human Services, working with our school psychologists, counselors, making sure that uh, those in, most in need have the resources, that information. If you yourself are aware of a community or area, and I guess I need to add too, the cities uh, stepping up and providing supports as well. Um, so going door to door, making phone calls, checking in on families. Uh, many of our school districts actually have launched surveys for children um, and also the adults within the system. And we have found um, but through these surveys, uh, more supports that are needed, and now, now we need to address those. So I guess to round out the question, um, yes, we are uh, making every effort to link our supports, both adults and uh, for children, to make sure that uh, Nevadans receive the support they need. And that is through collaboration, not just in K-12. Perfect, thank you. Thank you. The chair now recognizes Kenneth Dalton. Ken, are you on mute? Yeah, thank you, uh, Superintendent, for being here. Can you hear me? I'm okay? Yes. Yes. Okay. We can hear you. Yeah. Okay. So the question I have is there any, any documentation on the um, I guess we call the unrepresentative unrepresented community people of color that prior to the pandemic there was a serious problem in education for some of those groups. And now, um, after the pandemic, where did they where did that group weigh as far as the problems that they're they're having being that they had problems before the pandemic thank you for the question and i think you you've amplified um what has transpired in that uh graph one of the last slides so we have seen as a state uh, that those that have um, are black and brown children uh, ha are, are have experiencing uh, less growth than than ever before, and so it is incumbent upon all of us to look at the system. And what we've been talking about, and actually I didn't talk about um, earlier, is what we have done is put together a blue ribbon commission because during this pandemic we need to not look at grades right i'm a, i'm eight years old so i'm in third grade and this is the curriculum that i will have what we need to do is as our students return to campus take stock in what they know and what they're able to do right now and then we need as a system to meet our children where they're at for some children they may be excelling through this and so we will meet them through acceleration 
For others, they are, are if they you know technically were in grade three, but now they're learning at a grade two level, providing those resources and doubling down in support and making sure that they progress. Uh, so this is an opportunity truly to move away from uh, just saying, you know, th this is your age and this is a grade and this is a curriculum, but meeting our children where they're at and then accelerating them through so that by the time they graduate, they are well prepared either to create a home, a life and a future that we would all want all of our children to do. So again, I guess um, closing out, you have, have reiterated what um, is happening not only here in the state of Nevada, but across the nation. Uh, and we have a lot of work to do in naming it and being strategic and intentional about our work uh, is, is, is the path to make sure that there are no um, gaps in, in the learning that has transpired during this time. Thank you. The chair now recognizes Carol DeCarlo. Thank you, Chair Blaylock. Um, thank you, Superintendent Ebert, for being with us. This has been a really interesting presentation and we have all suffered in many, many ways and different levels. And But I look at things as the glass is half full. And even though this has been a horrible time for all of us, I think of it as a lemon, you make lemonade from everything you've witnessed and have been part of, what good things can you take forward that will make a difference um, to our children, K through 12? I mean, we, it's been so bad, but something good has got to have come out of that. There's gotta be lessons learned. So I'd like to you to share that with us, please. Thank you. I love the question and I love that you're glass, glass half full. I think everyone on this call um, uh, that I've worked with, you know, you don't waste a good crisis. Um, so in that vein, the bringing together, you know, I've been in education for over 30 years and I've been in uh, partnerships, but the partnerships that have been built out of this crisis need to remain and extend beyond where we're at now. And I, I really feel that we had an opportunity as a state to share you know what we do well and what we don't do well um, to to the commissioner's prior question you know we have we have um, uh, children that are not um, succeeding in the current system and so how do we change the system um, it's not about how we change the children the, the children are awesome and we need to change the system uh, to be able to uh, support our children and so there are no temporary fixes, right? But it's building out the system moving forward. So number one, I would say um, leveraging our public-private partnerships. We have nonprofit organizations and making it easier for our schools and superintendents to clearly understand how to access those resources. And I think we saw it across our state in many areas, not just in education. There are resources, but sometimes there's a disconnect on how and how to connect. So that number one. Um, number two, increased parent engagement. The 
educators in classrooms have long asked, you know, I want to have parent engagement. I'm not sure. I don't know if parents, you know, understand what it's like to teach uh, a classroom with 35 children that all have different learning needs. Well, now you have parents that have experiences with two or three kids in their household and they're like, wow, I didn't know. You know, Mike learns this way, Susie learns that way, and Maria learns this way, and, and, and the parents are saying how they have to differentiate instruction and support at home. So it's, a, it's out of this crisis, I think um, parents, families, community members have had a really strong glimpse into what teaching is and how, um, how hard our educators work and want to support all of our learners. So I'll pause there, but those are just a few things that, that I think learnings that we definitely will take into the future. Thank you. The chair recognizes David Edelblum. Thank you, Chair Blaylock, and thank you, Superintendent Ebert, for your presentation today. I will echo uh, my fellow committee members and say that it's been very informative. I'm looking at the chart that I believe you supplied on the last slide of your presentation with student math progress. And just taking a, a quick glance at it and not having seen it before today, you can see some, some improvement among low, middle, and high income class after the start of stimulus payments. And then you kind of see that, you know, the, the low income never really kind of catches up to where it was pre-shutdown. Um, but I noticed something specific, and I'm hoping you might be able to speak to it. In the week ending February 7th of this year to February 14th, looks like there was a steep decline in all income levels, but um, significantly more in the low income level around that time period. And, and I was curious to know if, if you know uh, of why that might be here in Nevada. Thank you. I have not had the opportunity. The data that's there is um, from Zern. Uh, I have not drilled down. I mean, it's a great question. I have not had the opportunity to drill down specifically, but it is math data that is being looked at uh, from Zern. And so more than happy to, to go back with you. Okay, I appreciate that. I mean, I, you know, you can see it a large dip, right? which kind of makes sense with the way here at um, But it is concerning to see such a large drop, almost 30% in math progress in the low income area um, in a week's time. So I'd appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. The chair recognizes Deborah Feinster. Can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, okay. okay, thank you so much, Wendell. Thank you for everything that uh, you've done in putting this together, Susan. Same for you and uh, to the superintendent. Great job. I'm, I'm very pleased with your, uh, your presentation today. What I noticed that was very glaring is um, that there was outreach to the Clark County Black Caucus and being that um, in Washoe County, we're always saying by we, I mean, I'm a former school board member, I've been a principal out here at the elementary, middle and high school level. We're always saying, teachers, 
that it's Clark County who's bringing our test scores down. You know that statement. And what I'd like to know is if that is the case, then why isn't there some sort of former outreach or more of a concerted outreach to uh, the uh, black community in uh, Washoe County or to the superintendent or the board uh, to find out what is it that we are doing in Washoe County since we're always thinking that it's Clark County bringing us down. And I, I do know that a lot of our schools are um, being uh, impacted by uh, minority students right here in uh, Washoe County. So is there any, is there a reason that Washoe County didn't participate or I don't know. Thank, thank you uh, for the question. And I think um, the disaggregation of data is critical. And, and, you know, it's not, I think sometimes people look at data and, and, um, they, and they don't want to look at data. The fact of the matter is um, being a mathematician and knowing that the only way that we are going to be successful is to really truly drill in on every single child. Um, so I have worked with uh, Superintendent McNeil in Washoe County I have not had the opportunity for full disclosure uh, to work with the um, Washoe County uh, Black Caucus, uh, more than happy to. Uh, so thank you for that invitation. I, I hope you'll, you'll uh, send and I will reach out. Uh, we'll work at it from, from both angles. But what I would say is, and I was looking at the statewide data um, with a state board member actually two days ago and uh, you look at our, our black students graduation rate a decade ago was actually 40, if I remember correctly, it was 43 or 44%. And then you look today and it's 73%. So we, have a, we as a state have made progress. When you think about 40 to 70, that's 30% increase in graduation rate for our black students. So great. However, when you look at that graduation rate to the overall graduation rate for the state, and you look 10 years back, Asian students had a graduation rate of 73% 10 years ago. So not acceptable, not acceptable for any of us. Um, and I think what we've been working on as a team is actually asking the children how we can be doing better as adults. Uh, and I think there are a lot of things that have been done over the years that are successful. I don't have the magic bullet, um, uh, uh, Councilwoman, but if if I did, I would you know put it on steroids. So. I think it's all of us coming together continually to have the conversation around the data that is factual um, and and moving forward. It's it's something that is many hundreds of years in the making, 
Um, but I think in during our generation and our time, we can accelerate uh, the success of all of our children. Thank you, Superintendent Ebert. I appreciate you being here today. I, I understand you are tight on time because you have another engagement. So what I'd like to do is to collect questions because we have additional committee members who do have questions, to collect questions and contact your office and hope that you'll be able to provide us answers. So again, thank you for being here today and I appreciate all that you're doing and all of this very powerful information. So thank you very much. Thank you, Chair. I appreciate all of the questions, the honest conversation, and I look forward to working with all of you uh, to support our children. Thank you. Have a great day. I'd like to continue on with our meeting. So I'd like to invite Brian Mitchell, Director, Office of Science, Innovation and Technology. Good afternoon. Director Mitchell, yes sir. Uh, good afternoon, uh, uh, Chair Blaylock and members of the committee. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Great. Uh, it's an honor to be here today and thank you for this opportunity to present to you today. I'm Brian Mitchell, Director of the Governor's Office of Science, Innovation and Technology. Um, uh, if you'd like to bring up my slides, perfect. Um, so our mission, um, uh, we do, uh, we essentially have two different focus areas. Uh, one is on STEM education, uh, which I won't talk about today. And then the second is around uh, broadband, uh, which is uh, the topic for today. And um, like the superintendent, um, we take um, uh, equity is, is truly at the heart of everything that we do. And we work with all 17 school districts, as well as the charter schools uh, to ensure that every student has the technology and equipment that they need to connect to the internet um, at speeds that meet the standards set by the uh, Federal Communications Commission. Next slide. We have a number of different broadband uh, initiatives. Um, first, we uh, work to connect school buildings and libraries. And this was a, a major part of our work prior to the pandemic. Uh, so we, we provide customized technical assistance, consulting um, with uh, two schools and libraries in order to improve connectivity and increase the amount of federal funding that is applied for and received. Um, I'll skip over connecting kids at home, but uh, we also work on connecting rural healthcare uh, we provide support and application assistance for organizations that are seeking federal funding to provide care or to increase their ability to provide care via telemedicine. And then we also have a whole community connectivity program where we work with rural communities primarily uh, to um, put together a strategic plan to increase investments in their region for more effective and reliable broadband service. 
And for everyone who's been to rural Nevada, uh, you know that that is, that is truly necessary. Um, so the, uh, like, like the department and like the school districts, um, the, uh, the issue of connectivity at home for students was not top of mind prior to the pandemic. We were primarily concerned with connecting uh, libraries and schools, school buildings, where uh, the primary learning happened. And then we also worked to connect uh, communities, um, including uh, business, uh, government, um, and, and also uh, residential areas more broadly. Um, but the pandemic really drove home uh, the need uh, to uh, work to connect students at home. Uh, next slide. And um, the, uh, the, the previous slide had a picture of Las Vegas and also a, a picture of Panaca. And, and so as you might imagine, the, the challenges associated with connecting students in Las Vegas is, uh, are, are very different than this, uh, the challenges of connecting students in, in places like Panaca, um, Austin, Battle Mountain, um, uh, Hawthorne, and, and so on. And um, ultimately, though, I think the, the, the uh, kind of two of the, the main challenges that we ran into um, that were common across the state were, um, and, and, I'm, and I'm taking you back to the start of the pandemic, uh, were a lack of accurate needs data and a device and component shortages nationwide. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, the, the issue of whether students had connectivity and devices at home prior to that pandemic was not something that school districts ever had to worry about. Um, the learning happened at school and, and um, you know, but, but school districts really didn't have the infrastructure in place to, to know whether or not a given student had um, uh, connectivity, had, had a home internet connection or had a device at home. And so when the pandemic happened, it, I think it, um, uh, it surprised everyone at the school district level. And, and so there was a bit of scrambling to kind of figure out what the, ex what ex um, what the extent of the problem was and how to solve it. Uh, next slide. So um, the next two slides, I, I wanted to provide some initial estimates. And these were initial estimates you know, back in um, May and June of 2020. And one of the things that I, um, uh, I'll say two things about the next two slides. First, every single number that you see ended up changing as time went on and as uh, school districts were able to get better information. But the other thing I think I want you to notice is how many zeros there are on this page. And, and Anna, you can go to the next page. And ultimately, what these were is these were estimates. These were back of the kind of back of the napkin calculations, um, but no one really knew what the true extent of the problem was. So you'll see a whole lot of zeros on the page. And if Superintendent Eber were on the phone, I know, she, or we're still in the meeting, I know she would be nodding here that that our that our one of our primary efforts that um, that the department and my office OSIT. Um, really struggled with was trying to get rid of all those zeros and drill down to the student level to find out 
whether uh, each student had what they needed in order to learn. And, and that was very tough. Um, you know, there's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, and, and it took quite a bit of time in order to figure, out, uh, figure that out. Next slide. So we developed a process for ensuring connectivity for every student. Um, so the process went like this. The school districts would identify the number of students without a device and without a residential internet service. And then districts would allocate uh, funding, whether it came from their own budget, uh, state or federal sources, or philanthropic sources to one of the following. Um, they, uh, for students that needed a device, um, districts would purchase a device. And if the device could mean a Chromebook or a laptop, primarily. And then connectivity. Um, uh, uh, school districts would purchase a connectivity solution for their students. And then uh, the Department of Education and NOSED would provide technical assistance. Uh, next slide. So um, just to give you a little bit of an idea about the uh, technical assistance that we offer to school districts, um, we um, offered assistance to uh, help them um, understand what their needs were uh, with their uh, tender to develop solutions and to figure out the, the network engineering, uh, technical specification development, uh, procurement and RFPs, um, application, um, uh, technical review, so as they get in proposals to help them review those, and then student and family outreach. Uh, next slide. Ultimately, um, of all the things that we offered, I think the, uh, the two things that districts wanted and needed help with the most were finding hotspots and Chromebooks, or in the case of Washoe County, laptops. Um, so for those of you that don't know, a hotspot is a small little device that is about the size of your cell phone, and what it does is it connects to a cellular network and then broadcasts out a signal, um, you know, typically um, with good enough range to cover uh, a home. And so uh, these can be issued directly to students so that then the student can take that with them to their home and, um, and, and, and connect to the internet. And then uh, as far as devices go, most, uh, most school districts in Nevada, as well as most of the charter schools, prefer Chromebooks. Um, and uh, over laptops. Now, as you might imagine, um, there were, uh, you know, uh, our, our districts in Nevada weren't the only ones in the, in the country or even in the world looking for these uh, devices. And so there's a nationwide shortage of both the, the components that go in to build the devices as well as the devices themselves. And so oftentimes uh, vendors um, would um, report delays of months and months in the terms of, of getting the uh, getting uh, shipments of uh, a particular device. So one of the things that we did was we scoured vendor networks, and as um, you know, a few hundred Chromebooks came up here or there uh, that were available to ship. We would. Uh, reach out to districts and say, you know, su such and such vendor has, you know, 650 Chromebooks, you know, here are the specifications, would anyone like to take them up on it? And so districts, um, you know, if, if, the, if the device
device met the district specifications, then you know they would have the ability to procure them. Uh, next slide. So uh, there were too many partners, I think, to put on this slide, but I wanted to call out two partners in particular, um, knowing that there were numerous partners that that helped to um, that helped us to be able to achieve the goal that the superintendent spoke of earlier. And, and so I'll highlight T-Mobile and Cox. Um, uh, first, uh, in Las Vegas, in Clark County, the, uh, the challenge uh, was significantly greater than anywhere else in terms of getting uh, students uh, the connectivity that they needed. And so Cox really stepped up in, in huge ways where uh, they worked with the school district to provide their uh, discounted service to any student that qualified. And so we, we, we spent hundreds of Zoom meetings and many, many hours working out the details of how um, families would be put in contact, um, uh, about how the families would be identified that needed connectivity, and then how uh, Cox would um, provide that connectivity to them. And, and so they were a, a very great partner. Uh, likewise, T-Mobile was a great partner as well. The state received uh, 18,000 hotspots uh, in, uh, in a settlement as a part of the uh, Sprint T-Mobile merger. And so those hotspots were distributed to school districts um, where T-Mobile had sufficient service in order to um, facilitate distance learning. So most of the hotspots went to Clark County, but we were able to provide hotspots to many of the other smaller districts as well. Um, uh, and those were key and, and, and right at the start of the school year, uh, being able to help students learn. Next slide. Uh, so as the superintendent mentioned, the, um, the governor's COVID-19 task force um, also played a huge role in helping get kids connected. And we set up a website, the Connecting Kids in B initiative, which some of you may be familiar with, and um, worked with every district to get them down to zero. Or uh, once every student was connected, then the, uh, then the district could become a green district, as you saw on the map that, that the uh, superintendent showed earlier. And so this was a very, um, you know, it, it was a very hands-on process of working with every district leader and, uh, you know, the superintendents and the, uh, the IT staff of the districts in order to find the right equipment and then distribute that out to families and to identify the families that, that need it. Next slide. All right, uh, so I'd like to conclude with a couple of key takeaways and then, uh, and then also some of our uh, solutions. So ultimately, um, this problem, I think, of, well, first let me say that I think um, even after, you know, I think we all hope that life returns to normal very soon, you know, once the vaccine is, um, is widely available and, and has been widely used. The, um, um, none of us think that education is going back to the way it was and that distance learning and the need for connectivity and devices is going to be a part of our education system moving forward. And that we, this is something that we need to think about and plan for and provide for moving forward. And then the second I think is that, um, is that COVID really laid bare the inequities in our, in our society and in our system when it came to 
um, well, many things, but certainly the, uh, the level of connectivity and the devices that are in students' homes. And so with that in mind, we need to have um, solutions that are, um, that are equity-focused and equity-driven in order to solve the problem. And so um, a couple of key takeaways, um, you know, really this is, I, I think, both a poverty problem as well as a rural problem for different reasons. So there are families that simply do not, you know, that live in places in urban areas where there is available connectivity, but they simply do not have the money to connect to the internet. And whereas in rural areas, there, you know, while there are certainly uh, many families in poverty in rural areas, you know, there are families who perhaps have the means to connect, but they simply can't because they live in a, in a place where their the connect connectivity infrastructure doesn't exist. So uh, second, I would uh, say is that, that in order to solve this problem, we need um, uh, accurate and concrete data down to the student level. And then finally, federal assistance was key uh, to get us to where we are and will be key moving forward. So I'd like to discuss quickly in the, in the time I have left five solutions that we are pursuing right now um, and that I can go into greater detail uh, in later if there's desire. First, uh, we submitted an, a waiver request to the FCC that would allow us to broadcast internet to students in their homes from school buildings. Currently, the F uh, FCC only allows uh, internet to be used within the four walls of the school, and we believe we can connect 60% of the students in the state if we are allowed to broadcast the internet that the schools are already using into the surrounding neighborhoods. Obviously, this would be a SIPA-compliant um, internet solution that would only allow for students to connect, you know, and not the general public. Uh, number two, um, with regard to the need for accurate and concrete data, uh, currently under consideration of the legislature is SB 66, which would require my office to um, establish a statewide system for data gathering uh, for students who need connectivity in their homes and need a device. Uh, the bill would then require school districts to respond and provide that information to my office. And then we would follow up with a comprehensive report and gap analysis, as well as recommendations for closing that gap. And so should the, uh, we be uh, fortunate enough that the bill would pass around this time next year, uh, we would expect to provide that information to the governor, the legislature, and the State Board of Education. Uh, the third um, is that there is federal funding in the um, uh, available for home broadband that is in the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package that the Senate is currently considering, and that will be key for us moving forward. The um, and the uh, what I'll say is is that the uh, SB 66, the data that we will gather, will be necessary for us in order to draw down those federal funds. Uh, number four. Uh, the federal government is also considering expanding the Lifeline program, which is a um, which is a benefit for low-income families for either a cell phone or a home internet connection. Currently, the benefit is $10 per month, and it's under consideration to expand that to $50 a month. And so, we will certainly need the help of community organizations and nonprofit organizations to help families to be able to sign up for that program. Uh, finally. Um, the, the fifth thing I'll mention is that we're currently working with the City of Las Vegas and the City of North Las Vegas on a pilot project that will connect students to the internet through uh, city-owned infrastructure and that the city-owned infrastructure can facilitate students connecting to their school networks 
um, through that uh, city-owned infrastructure. And so students who have a device that may not have connectivity in their homes will still be able to connect to their school's network to be able to do their homework. But it wouldn't allow, for example, for people to watch Netflix. And so, um, so it's a, it's truly is a, is a school network. So with that, um, uh, thank you for the time and I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you, Director Mitchell. And we will have a Q&A following the next two presenters as well. So thank you. Our next presenter is Terry Norris, Director of eLearning College of Southern Nevada. Good afternoon. I'm going to look at some issues and trends in e-learning that impact student success and student equity. And these issues and trends have been magnified during the pandemic. Uh, it's hard to believe I've been working at home for a year now, and um, it's just been a, a crazy time in higher education, working with students and, and faculty during this time. Some key issues that we're facing increased federal regulation related to distance learning. Financial aid fraud is big when it comes to distance learning. Um, ADA compliance is huge. That's a huge project we're working on at CSN. We've incorporated or instituted a piece of software in our learning management system that checks all documents for its accessibility and tells faculty how to improve the accessibility of documents. But it also allows students to view documents in different formats that they can be so they can be more successful in viewing the documents and, and learning the material. Student authentication has been big. It used to be the student authentication was just Use distinct user name and password. Now, <clears throat> the accrediting bodies, <clears throat> excuse me. Now, the accrediting bodies are requiring more. We're looking at proctoring software that where students can have to show their ID while they're taking tests, so that we can know that the person taking the exam is the person who uh, signed up for the course. And that is the same with accreditation. Accreditation is requiring us to follow eight major guidelines related to evaluating distance education and that's put a big burden on CSN as well as then as that trickles down to students. State authorization. Uh, U.S. Department of Education has uh, developed a requirement that if we're offering online courses to students who reside outside of Nevada, we have to get approval from that state to offer those courses to those students. Well, the, there was an organization developed in NC Sarah that if you part of if you're a member of that, you get state reciprocity, and every state is a member except California. And we know there will be more federal regulations coming. And obviously during the pandemic, we've had less money, but we've had to do more. Um, we like at CSN, when we went live for at the pandemic on March 18th, within 24 hours, all our courses had to be have a live remote uh, component to it. But we're doing we're doing it with less money and less support available for both faculty and students. Uh, E-learning, I think, is the best approach to working in the pandemic. Obviously, we were able to support both faculty and students with web conferencing. Uh, with um, 
online tutoring. We provide online 24-7 online tutoring to our students. It's free um, through our learning management system. Uh, become, we, we as an institution back then become more cost effective as we work to support students and faculty. Uh, it's, it's it, online learning is perfect for adult learners. I think it's a misnomer to think that the students right out of high school are already prepared for it. Uh, we found that there are some things, learning curves for students right out of high school that we weren't expecting. Um, next slide. We were seeing an increased competition in higher education for students. There's with online learning, there's sort of a blurring of jurisdictions so students can pick and take courses from uh, CSN, they can take courses from Arizona State, they can take courses from a school in California. Um, so we're really struggling with that, this blur, that blurring of traditional state jurisdictions. I think we've started to see the, the decline so much of for-profits, uh, the, where we're seeing uh, a rise is the new purchase with ASU and their corporate partnerships and WGU with their um, competency-based education. Obviously, since the pandemic happened, we've seen a tradition, decline in traditional classroom campus. Uh, um, we do have students who are still on campus. It's only the students who are taking uh, career and technical education courses that come to campus. And as a result, this semester, I think 85% of courses at CSN were on, online or remote. Um, we're not truly, we, I think what the pandemic has made us do is truly, we started to truly embrace 21st technologies. We have, like for example, at CSN to, kept, to help faculty teach students. We have lecture capture software so they can record their lectures, show it to students in the course. The students have access to 24 seven to the lectures. Uh, we are using monitoring software for proctoring software for exams. We have Turnitin, which is a, a plagiarism detection software. So we've, we've started to embrace the technologies that are available to help support student learning and student success. What we found is that learning sometimes is still too much faculty-centered. The faculty are the ones who see themselves as the most important part in, the, in this uh, process. And we need to focus more on the student and providing student support and student success. Uh, the pandemic has also increased the rise of mobile and accelerated learning models. Um, let me just talk, well, we, when we talk about mobile devices, we're talking about phones. We have a lot of students who try to access their course with their phones. We encountered the same issue that the, that the st uh, state had with in regards to students having access at home. We've, we've got issued hotspots, laptops to students. Uh, we've even had to issue hotspots and laptops to some of our faculty who did not have the technology at home to teach our students in this online remote environment. Um, we got to look at how students learn and not how we think they learn. Uh, faculty sometimes tend to focus on what they think is the best approach for students. And it's not always the best approach for how, because as we know, all students learn differently. 
Okay, next. According to U.S. Department of Education data, there's a decline in value of degree completion. We've seen that at CSN. Uh, decline in residency in a full-time student. Declining institutional loyalty. As I said, we're finding students. Like if I go into our student information system and look at where students are taking courses, we have students at CSN who are taking courses at UNLV, taking courses at Truckee Meadows. They're taking courses where they can find them to fit their schedule. And then the rising cost of higher education during the pandemic. We've had to increase the cost to students, which has put a bur more of a burden on students during this time uh, as, as CSN has struggled with fu funding and providing all the services necessary to support student success. This is something we've been, we really embrace at CSN to try to help students, all students, but I think it really helps the students of, of, of uh, low income, poverty level students. We know at CSN one of the biggest barriers to student success is the cost of textbooks. It's an, you know, many students do not buy the textbook till the course has started because they try to slide by without using the textbook. Uh, most textbooks are in the $100 to $200 category. And so what we're, we're really focusing on at CSN is the rise of open educational resources. And we think that's going to level the playing ground for all students uh, in higher education. What open educational resources are, it's, it's basically textbooks that people have written uh, in, in higher education, and they are available for faculty to use for free. So the faculty can build their courses using these open educational resources, and students, when they log into class the first day, all their content will be there. They do not have to go buy a textbook. Um, and faculty can make changes to the, the, the to the materials based on being an open educational resources, being Creative Commons. We're really trying to push open educational resources to try to level the playing ground for students at CSN. What we're trying to we're trying to find the what technology and finding ways to tailor learning that fits the needs of the students. As I've been saying all along, all student learning is different and we have to be adept, adept at trying to meet their different learning styles. And if we can meet those different learning styles, we'll increase student success and completion. Uh, there's the model WV, WGU, the use of competency-based education that looks at students experiences somewhat and, and provides educational credit for experiences that can expedite or speed up the process to graduation. And that's my presentation for today. Director Norris, and we will have Q&A after our next presenter. Our next presenter is Melody Rose, Chancellor, Nevada System of Higher Education. 
Good afternoon. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee. Thank you so much for inviting me to participate in this really important series examining equity and distance learning education. Uh, the issues of equity and distance education are real passions for me, and I've been deeply engaged in them my whole career. Obviously, we're in unprecedented times. While we're fortunate in this day and age to have the technology that facilitates our work, studies, and play, we know that technology is also responsible for exacerbating long-standing inequities in education. I'd like to start my remarks by telling you a story about Clara, one of our approximately 111,000 students in Nevada. This student was the first in her family to attend college. Along with her family, she also worked full-time at the front desk of one of our premier strip resorts. In her second semester at UNLV, this 18-year-old was an A student. And then a year ago, she lost her job. When the state was forced to shutter campuses and switch to distance learning, Clara started to miss live course discussions. She stopped turning in her assignments. She was struggling because she needed to share her family's one computer with her siblings in high school. Disconnected, she didn't see or respond to the emails from the university offering financial and technological assistance. She didn't see or respond to the emails from her faculty asking her to work with them to make up the assignments or to take an incomplete in her classes. And now, a year later, if and when she returns to complete her degree, she will find that she will need to go through a number of academic hurdles, retake classes, and work even harder to improve what had been a perfect GPA. What Clara's story tells us is that we as policymakers and leaders can do a lot to help struggling students, but none of it matters if they can't hear us and if they can't reach us. High-speed internet, a tablet, laptop or computer, and a smartphone have become survival tools. Without them, our students are simply lost. So let me tell you a little bit about the pandemic effects uh, from a 50,000-foot level on higher education. Higher education has been attentive to racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic educational inequities related to accessing college and graduation for quite some time. And while we've made real strides in reducing some of these gaps, we were nowhere near a fair and equitable system when this pandemic hit. Prior to March 2020, about one third of the nation's higher education students were taking at least one class online. Within a two-week period, that number moved to 100%. While most students own their own smartphones and many own laptops or tablets, they may lack the financial resources to connect them to high-speed internet or access unlimited data, particularly as many of our students lost their jobs or had their hours dramatically reduced. They may also lack a quiet, safe place in which to do their work. Many students struggle to stay motivated in this new online environment. In a national survey of more than 1,000 undergraduates, students reported missing feedback from their instructors and collaborating with their peers, and more than 20% reported having technical difficulties with their internet connection, software, or hardware. Furthermore, when colleges and universities st sent students home and closed their doors last spring, 
many on-campus support services designed to help level the playing field for disadvantaged students were simply no longer accessible. But unfortunately, there is some research that indicates that the lack of digital access is negatively affecting higher education enrollment across the country, particularly at our community colleges. Nationwide, post-secondary enrollment declined 2.5% fall over fall. That's extremely troubling for Nevada, where our largest industry is accelerating the use of automation and artificial intelligence in response to the pandemic, displacing low-skill workers who would benefit from access to higher education for retraining. In summary, the pandemic has exacerbated the challenges facing our most vulnerable students at a time when they needed us the most. So what are our INCHI institutions doing about this problem? I wanna tell you about our financial commitment, academic supports, and mental health awareness. First, in terms of our financial commitment. Financial insecurity is one of the biggest threats to students' success and completion. And the economic consequences of the pandemic has made this an even greater challenge. Over the past few months, we've moved rapidly to get approximately $60 million in direct federal CARES funds into the hands of our students who need it most, allowing them to buy the devices or broadband that they need, or simply paying their tuition bills and making sure that they have food to eat. We're anticipating that a third stimulus bill may also include additional dollars to help this population and succeed at our institutions. And of course, all along the way, our commitment through the Promise Scholarship and the Silver State Opportunity Grant continue on, and we are moving those monies into the pockets of students as quickly as we can. In terms of academic support, due to the challenges that Superintendent Ebert shared that high school students have faced for the past two years, we're anticipating that an unprecedented number of college freshmen who enroll in our institutions in this coming fall will be bringing learning loss with them, possibly underprepared in core courses such as math and English. And she recognizes this challenge, and we recognize that we have a responsibility to meet that challenge and meet students where they are. It's called co-requisite education, and it's taking the place of what we used to call remedial or developmental education. Those courses designed to prepare the underprepared for college level math and English courses. Historically, for every 100 students placed into traditional developmental education within our community colleges back in the day, only eight would graduate. The remaining 92 students would have dropped out or remain spiraling in the system, accumulating additional costs and time. An 8% graduation rate was unacceptable and prompted a comprehensive change in NCHI policy in 2016. The Board of Regents adopted a milestone policy, eliminating traditional remediation in favor of what we call co-requisite supports. This policy requires all students be enrolled in college level English and math courses in their first year. Under this policy, we meet students where they are. Students who would otherwise be diverted into developmental education now gain access to college level math or, or English, and they will receive the necessary supplemental wraparound support at the same time. 
students show that underprepared students who are met this way in a welcoming and supportive environment are far more likely to complete their intended program. Next, let me tell you a little bit about faculty support and development. Even if we could provide all the technology, hardware, and software necessary to bridge Nevada's digital divide, at the end of the day, it is people, our dedicated faculty, who will be the ones who make the biggest impact on Nevada's education gaps online and in the classroom. The best practices in higher education to bridge these long-standing inequities in a remote world are all focused on what happens in the virtual classroom between the teacher and the student. Ironically, studies have shown it is simple instructional practices that do the absolute most to improve student satisfaction and engagement in online learning. These include frequent and personal messages from instructors to students to check in on their progress, the use of real world examples to amplify course concepts, and assignments that ask students to reflect on what they learned and what they still need to learn. We need to support our faculty in their continued professional development. They have stepped up at the most remarkable time in the most remarkable way, and we need to support them in doing so. In terms of mental health support, the COVID-19 global pandemic caused disarray across every facet of our way of life, and it increased stress and anxiety in all facets of our campus communities. Students are concerned about many issues, such as where their next meal may come from, unemployment, illness in their family, and how their timeline to degree has been affected by the pandemic. In response to evolving student needs based on the pandemic, we at ENCHI convened a mental health task force to address these challenges. The task force is populated by subject matter experts and will conduct a comprehensive assessment of student mental health across ANCHI to develop actionable, evidence-based, and scalable recommendations to better meet the needs of our student population. And now, the way forward. In this day and age, technology is a staple of education. We need to make sure we get it to students like Clara so that they can have the support they need and they're not left in the dark. ANCHI colleges and universities have technology programs in place to loan, and in some cases, to give away laptops and other technology, including hotspots, webcams, and microphones at no charge. We too have partnered with Cox Communications to provide all students a discounted price for internet access. But at the end of the day, it's not quite enough. To address the impact that the digital divide has on educational inequities, we need to recognize that internet is as important as any basic utility, such as clean water and heat in the winter. We need to work collaboratively to knit together connectivity, marshalling all of our resources, including fiber, satellites, and towers, to make high-speed internet accessible to everyone. 96% of 18 to 29 year olds have a smartphone. Despite years of our efforts to part students from their phones, we know they are increasingly using these devices instead of a traditional computer or laptop to do their coursework because many, like Clara, have no other option. We need to do a better job of making our online and remote courses phone friendly. 
We need to come up with ways to help students increase information literacy skills so that they can do credible research on these devices, write papers, and even complete complex equations on them. And finally, we need to find better ways to communicate with them because emails are quickly becoming the way of the fax, the pager, and the postage stamp. In this day and age, communicating with students and keeping them engaged in what they're learning must be a top priority and we must have the means to do so. We can and we will do more for students like Clara and prepare anyone who comes through our virtual doors, regardless of their zip code, their data plan, or their cell service provider. If we can marshal our resources through partnership, better leverage our technology and what we already know about best teaching practices, we can build the 21st century workforce we need to compete in our increasingly complex and connected world. Thank you very much to the Nevada Advisory Committee to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights for hosting this conversation today. I'm really pleased to be part of it and I'm ready to accept your questions. Thank you, Chancellor Rose. We will now move into the Q&A portion of the meeting. I will now call on each committee member to see if you have a question for the panelists. Please indicate if you have a specific question for a specific speaker or if directed at all speakers. If members have additional questions, I'd like to ask you to use the raise hand function. And for members joining through the phone only, you can press star three to raise your hand. You may also unmute yourself by pressing star six. So we will begin. The chair will recognize David Bach. Uh, thank you, thank you. And, uh, and thank you all for your interesting presentations. Uh, I have a question for, uh, for Mr. Norris. Uh, although I'd, I'd be interested in uh, 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 Chancellor Rose's response as, as well. Um, uh, you, uh, you gave an interesting presentation uh, that I'm somewhat, I, I, but I'm skeptical about some of what you said, and I'd like to e explain why. Uh, you, you said that uh, e-learning is perfect for adults, but I wonder whether it's perfect for adults or children based on the responses that I hear from many of my students in, in my classes at UNLV. I'm worried that we're creating a system in, in which technology will drive education rather than vice versa. You say that the traditional system of in-person instruction is faculty-centered, but it seems to me both both student-centered and faculty-centered based on based on what I hear. If that's not the case, why are there a good number of, of students who are putting off higher education until the pandemic is over? Could it be because they recognize the value, how much there is to be gained from face-to-face -face contact with their fellow students with their teachers, with others, uh, both how much there is to be gained both in and outside the classroom. Oh, you're, you're muted, sir. 
I'm muted. Sorry about that. I keep forgetting that sometimes in these meetings. Yeah, I, I would be first to say that online learning is not for all students. Uh, it is not going to be something that all students can be successful at. What I meant was during the pandemic, online learning and e-learning was the perfect solution to keep students in a learning environment. Um, it's not, you know, when we go back to and, and who knows when this will be, when we go back to a more normal semester, we will see more face-to-face -face courses and I think students, there will be students who will benefit tremendously from the face-to-face -face courses. I just think during the pandemic, online learning slash e-learning was the perfect tool to keep students in a learning environment, uh, both young students and older students. It hasn't, been, it hasn't went by without a struggle for both. Like for example, when Chancellor Rose was just doing her presentation, I had an answer in an instructor's email because our learning management system is down right now. So it, it's not a perfect world, uh, but I just think we were, we were suited to help students be successful from last March to where we are now. And Mr. Chair, may, may I add on to that? Oh, thank you. Um, well, Mr. Fott, thank you for raising those questions and thank you for your service as an instructor. It's such a critical role right now. I appreciate it. Um, what I would add um, to Mr. Norris's remarks is that we've learned a lot in the past 20 years about online learning and the kinds of trade-offs that exist with that and face-to-face -face instruction. And, you know, as with all things, uh, there are all different kinds of learners and some who benefit directly from online instruction. Uh, there is some evidence that whether or not you benefit in the online environment has to do with your um, access to the proper technology, uh, your savviness with it, and how accessible we make it. And we haven't talked about ADA compliance yet today, um, but it's a real concern uh, that we make sure that all of our online platforms are fully ADA compliant. Otherwise, we're really not broadening access, we're, we're closing it. So I think we've learned a lot. And where I would um, land on this question of online versus face-to-face, is that we need a strategic, thoughtful mix of the both of them. Uh, 20 years ago, students would report that they, they were either learning online or they were learning face-to-face. -face. And the model that we're seeing emerging even before the pandemic is that students desire a mix because there are some things that are better off online and some things that are better off face-to-face. -face. And I think that's the strategic conversation that the state needs to have. Once we're through the pandemic, where do we want to be with online learning to optimize that platform for the largest amount of our students? Thank you. The chair recognizes Augusta Massey. Good afternoon, 
I just want to say thank you so much to all the uh, speakers for your thoughtful presentations today. Um, um, Mr. Norris, I do teach at CSN, so I was particularly interested in your part of the presentation. So thank you for all that you shared. I was wondering if you found more inequalities exposed um, across the different campuses. As you know, we have the Charleston campus, we have you know North Las Vegas, and um, the one in Henderson, where there more was was there a particular campus that was maybe more prepared for this than others, and what has been the plans to help catch up? I'm sorry, I can't. Um, you might need to unmute. Sorry, sorry, sorry about that. Sorry about that again. Uh, what I was saying was, um, I don't think any of us were really prepared for this last March. I remember being in a meeting on March, I think, 13th, where we were saying, we got to come up with a two-week plan on what going live and remote. And then the following Wednesday, we were live and remote. And I think what we discovered is that students weren't prepared, faculty weren't prepared. And I think it was across all three campuses that the that students and faculty weren't prepared, both with technology resources. We, we were doing the same thing with hotspots, loaning out uh, laptops that uh, Mr. Mitchell talked about to students, but we also found that faculty weren't prepared for it. So I think it, it just, nobody was at CSN or in higher education, I think, were prepared to deal with the pandemic. Thank you. The, the chair recognizes Teresa Navarro. Can you hear me? Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, we hear you now. Yes, we hear you. <laughs> okay. Uh, my question is to uh, Brian. Is he still on? I don't see him on there, but is he still there? The tech guy? I am here. Oh, okay. My question is to you. Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, my biggest concern in the community, uh, being a community activist and involved in, very involved in the community, is the connection of the internet for um, low-income families that can't afford it and, and everything. And I'm, I'm really pleased to hear uh, what you are doing as far as giving them the hotspots and so forth. But what I wanted to ask you is on this uh, bill, this SB66 bill, and what you're saying is what that bill will do is that the community around the school would be able to connect to the internet to that school? Brian Mitchell, uh, for the record, the uh, no. So SB 66 is primarily a data gathering bill. So oh, okay. Personally, we don't, we can't solve the problem if we don't understand what the extent of the problem is and who needs connectivity and who doesn't. So SB 66 re um, requires my office, uh, OSIT, to um, develop a statewide data gathering system and then requires the school districts and the charter schools to respond to that to uh, tell us who in their school districts needs connectivity and who needs a device or who doesn't have a connectivity and who does not have a device. And so once we know down to the student level 
who where the needs are, then we will be able to begin to make solutions or begin to make recommendations for uh, solutions to to uh, ensure that each student is connected. Thank you. The chair now recognizes Andre Cosgrove. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for these presentations. So um, I've actually been teaching online for about 20 years. And so I've worked a lot with Terry Norris at CSN. And you know, talking about who's suited for online education, Terry and I have had these conversations before that we have a lot of students, especially women who are single parents who come to CSN, the only way they can go to college is by taking online classes. If you're working a job where your schedule changes every week, you cannot be a traditional student. But I think as we kind of stumbled our way through, is we, we were just assuming you did technology training, then you taught online. Terry, can you talk a little bit about the difference between kind of the technology training and then the pedagogical training that goes into teaching online? I keep keeping the mute thing. Sorry about that. Um, I'm trying to keep being muted so you don't hear my emails dinging in the back here because our learning management system is struggling right now. Um, we, uh, we do technology training for faculty because faculty need to be comfortable with the technology that we're using at CSN to support online and online learning. And it's not just online learning, but it's hybrid learning as well. We have a lot of faculty who teach hybrid courses. They, where they meet one day a week online, maybe one day a week using right now they're using web conferencing as a way to meet in person. Um, but yes, there is training and pedagogy as well. There's been research that's been done that shows that how a course is set up in a learning management system can impact how successful the student is in the online environment. So we work with faculty about how to design their courses so that students will have, be able to access the content in a more efficient and easier way. It's no, nothing more frustrating to a student to log into a course and not be able to find the syllabus. And, and so there are just key things that we work with faculty in regards to how to set up your course, how to design your course that will provide better success for students. Is that what you're talking about, Sandra? Yes, and so making the student that might not be successful, they, they think they're not successful online, but if they get into a course that's well designed, where the assignments are accessible, they can be successful online. And that's all I had, Mr. Chair. Thank you. The chair recognizes Kenneth Dalton. Mr. Dalton, are you unmuted? Anna, is there a way to unmute Kenneth Dalton? We'll, we'll come back. The chair recognizes Carol DeCarlo.
Thank you, Chair uh, Blaylock. Um, Chancellor Rose, we spent a lot of time together, but um, I would ask you the same question that I had asked Superintendent Ebert. And um, what you see coming out of all that, all this struggle, there's gotta be a silver lining and good things ahead for all of us. Um, and I like the thought, uh, you always talk about um, doing things so strategically. And I, I know education is change forever. We are all change forever, but what do you see as some of the positive coming out of all these struggles? Thank you. Well, thank you, Regent Del Carlo, and thank you for your commitment to all of these issues and your service in our community. Um, I, as you know, I am also a, a fierce optimist. Uh, I believe that we will come out of this better and stronger. Uh, and w one of the things that I think um, we come away with is the acknowledgement that online learning is here to stay maybe not at the percentages that we've experienced in the past 12 months, but I think it will be a more integral part of our learning uh, and of our pedagogies, as Professor Cosgrove mentioned, um, in, well into the future. And I, I think it has given us the opportunity to, when we can breathe and reflect on the lessons of the last year, I think it gives us the opportunity to ask where as a state do we want to be with online learning and and approach the coming decade with some uh, intentionality by bringing stakeholders together like some of the experts on this call to ask ourselves what is the right balance what is the strategy uh, i agree that online learning is an access issue uh, and allows us to bring in folks to our uh, learning systems that maybe otherwise couldn't be here. And so sometimes, um, you know, really early adopters, um, you know, learn hard lessons. I think as a state, we are right now poised to possibly leapfrog some of the older technologies that were cutting edge some years ago uh, and we really have an opportunity to come together, figure out what we want and go get it on behalf of our students. And I, I wanna echo something somebody else said, we, we've learned that we must center our students in all of our decision making and ask what is best for them. And um, some of these are granular issues like you know, if, as one gentleman said, if you're a student and you're taking classes at three Enchi institutions, all online. Does your experience look the same across all three of those institutions or are you hunting and pecking for a syllabus at, at one institution because it doesn't, the course isn't set up the same way? So again, I, I think we're just in a really envious, uh, enviable position of being able to reflect and move forward in a more equitable and intentional manner uh, because of the pandemic. So thank you for asking. Thank you. Thank you. The chair recognizes David Edelblut. Thank you, Chair Blaylock. And I don't have a question for our panelists at this time, but just want to take a brief moment to thank you for the time and effort that each of you put into your presentations here today and for all that you do uh, for education here in the state of Nevada. So thank you. Thank you. The chair now recognizes Deborah Pinkster.
Can you guys hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, I First of all, I appreciate everything that's been shared today by all the committee members. My number one thought is how does we how does all this information get out to the individuals who really could use it for instance um the chancellor spoke about uh clara maybe clara just didn't realize that there were certain uh, individuals that she could have gone to and uh made a connection and not have any interruption in her education. Um, I also am thinking about, I think Terry Norris, I think you said, made a comment that uh, the learning curve for students uh, coming out of high school is very different. I think this was something that someone just spoke about a little bit. Uh, if that learning curve is different, for different students uh, going into different colleges, what are some things that we are doing? What what are some strategies that we're employing uh, between universities and um, high school teachers to guarantee that some of these gaps are not so uh, such a divide for students, and that way there it's an easier transition into. Uh, the uh, community college level or the college level. So those were just two thoughts. Again, great information. I'm just wondering how it, how we're getting it out to students and um, how can we just bridge some of the uh, gaps? Chancellor, what do you think? Oh, okay, thank you. I Thank you for um, directing your question. Um, let me take the second question first, this issue of how do we smooth out the gaps maybe between high school and higher education. Uh, I, I wish my friend and colleague, Superintendent Ebert, were still here in the meeting with us because I've been so grateful to her in forming a partnership with me. Both of us have spent time in states that really think about education in a very serious way being a a cradle to career system uh, where you know i see k through 12 success as being she success and we're inherently tied together and one way that we she and i are building on on that thinking is that we have established um, a co-chaired uh, in task force on what we call dual enrollment so this is one of the silver bullets in higher education. When we can bring college level instruction into high school classrooms, it accelerates not just learning, which is critical of course, but confidence. So when we're talking about maybe first generation college students like I was, going to college is terrifying right you maybe don't think you belong there you have probably never stepped foot on a college campus before it's a scary thing and so one of the really powerful ways in which the superintendent and i are intending to partner moving forward is to take the current dual enrollment system that we have in the state of Nevada and make it more robust and much more equitable 
because the way that it exists today is a bit of a patchwork work quilt of opportunity where your level of opportunity and your price tag depends on your zip code. And so we have come together, we've created a task force, they are moving forward recommendations to both the superintendent and me, and then we'll have a conversation with our boards about policy, about funding, about where we wanna go next. But I think that is one of the most serious efforts that we can make in bridging that divide and making it easier for our students to transition. Um, in terms of how do students know about all of the things that we're doing, you know, it's one of those tricky things, isn't it? Because on the one hand, we live in a society where we are drowning in information where you know we get 150 emails a day and goodness knows how many texts and so i think uh, you know part of what um we are learning in higher education is how to use big data and really modern social media to reach students in in strategic surgical ways like i suggested in my presentation i mean i have two of my youngest children are both in college i can tell you they don't read their emails uh, at least they don't read mine <laughs> and so I think we have to, again, we have to meet them where we are and use the forms of communication that they are into, not the forms of communication that we grew up on. Thank you for the questions. Thank you. We have a little time, so I'd like to recognize David Fox. Do you have an additional question for our panelists? Uh, well, I, I do have a question for uh, Mr. Mitchell. Um, uh, you said in your presentation that uh, one of the uh, challenges uh, will be to get accurate data at the at the student level, uh, and that you'll be relying on the school districts for for that uh, data. But we, we know that school districts have lost touch with students in some cases uh, dur during the pandemic. Uh, uh, will, how reliable will the data be if, if, we're, if we're forced to rely solely on the school districts? I recognize that there may not be a better solution, but I mean, is, is there a, is there a way to improve the data coming from the school districts so that you'll have better information? Thank you, Mr. Fodd, for the question. Uh, and you're, you're right, I think the, the, the school districts did lose touch with some students uh, during the pandemic. And, and that, while that's certainly unacceptable, the, the situation was also unprecedented. Um, I think where we go from here is, um, um, you know, as I said before, whether a student had a, a connection to the internet at their home or whether they had a access to their home really wasn't something that the school districts ever had to um, worry about before or it wasn't, a, it wasn't something that they had to know. And so one of the things that we want to do is we, when we develop this statewide um, data gathering system is work very closely with the school districts to, um, in, the, in, 
the in in both the the information that is collected as well as the how it is collected, so that uh, students aren't falling through the cracks. And I think there are thoughtful ways to do that. Um, in ways where students won't fall through the cracks, um, or or at least you know we'll be able to have fewer students falling through the cracks. So let me give you an example. Um, um, one of the strategies that I think we'll use that that wasn't available to us um, over the past year is is in the future. You know we we envision this being a um, you know not a one-time data gathering effort, but something that we'll we'll need to gather year after year because who needs who needs help with connectivity and the device will change year after year you know based on the student circumstances and as students come and go from the districts and so um, I think um, building these questions into the student registration process um, will help ensure that um, as students are registering and, and saying you know we are planning to go to school in your district or or we're going to we're going to be attending your charter school you know we'll be able to collect that information up front along with you know all the other information that the students are collect or that, that uh, families are providing to uh, to districts and you know making sure that we're thoughtful about collecting information, you know in ways that that makes sense you can't send an online survey to families who don't have the internet and so you know figuring out ways you know to be able to collect that information now um you know if there are if there are other you know things that we should consider you know i'm i'm all ears and you know and ultimately we want every student to be counted and and, and that's our goal and so the more input that we have in the process the better thank you the chair recognizes Augusta Massey. Do you have an additional question? Thank you so much, Chair. I do not have any additional questions. Thank you. Thank you. The chair recognizes Teresa Navarro. Teresa, do you have an additional question? I think you're muted. <laughs> I would laugh at Terry and now I'm getting it back. <laughs> um, I just want to thank all the panelists because I think that um, there was a lot of information, good information for us. Um, I'm kind of with Debbie is how do we get it out there um, uh, to our communities of, of, of what is there for them so that they can use it. Um, but I really just want to thank you then. That's really what I wanted to. Thank you. I agree. Thank you very much. I, I have one question for the panelists before we move into our public comments. Is there a standard speed that students need in order to have e-learning? Are they okay to have 25 megabits Per second, do they need 50 megabits per second? Is there a standard speed for them to access material and have a, a, a secure internet connection? 
this is Brian Mitchell, and, and I'll, I'll take a shot at answering that question. The, uh, the FCC standard for K-12 uh, distance learning is 25 megabits per second uh, download and 3 megabits per second upload. And every three or four or five years or so, they um, increase that standard, or they increase their, uh, uh, you know, they raise the bar, essentially. And so, but that is the current standard, and so when we um, pursue um, <laughs> solutions for schools and students, that's, that is the, um, um, that, that's the level of uh, speed that we, that we uh, require. Thank you. And so that's the speed in the urban areas as well as the rural areas. The standard speed. Correct. And it, uh, for us, it doesn't matter where you live. Um, you, um, you need the same uh, speed in order to access the same materials. And so, um, so that, that's a statewide standard. All right. Thank you very much. We will now go into public comment. This is an opportunity for the public to offer comments to the committee about this topic. Please keep your comments limited to two to four minutes. If you would like to make a comment, please either raise your hand by hovering your mouse near your name or type in the chat comment. If you are joining by phone, you can press start three to raise your hand. Please also know that you may submit written comments as well, and you're welcome to email them to anafortes at aportes at usccr.com. The due date for submission is May 17, 2021. Anna, do we have a list of anyone for public comment? So it appears we do not have anyone for public comment at this time. Let me report that we have four more web hearings scheduled and we welcome you to join us on March 31st, April 21st, May 15th, and May 19th, all at 12 o'clock to 2.30 p.m. In the chat, Anna has included information on how to register for these webcams. I want to thank all of our panelists. The information has been very eye-opening and beneficial for our committee. I also want to thank all of the committee members for their engagement and for the questions that they had for our panelists. Thank everyone for joining us. We appreciate your time and look forward to having you join our next few web hearings. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. So I thought about it for a minute. <clears throat> good morning, good morning, good morning. Still morning time want to say it's about 7.30 on March, Monday, March 15th. And I thought about listening to Nevada Department of Education presenting to the Office 
of the Department, I mean, the Department of Justice in regards to the disparate impact of whatever's going on in Nevada around public education and the failed services and how it's impacting the black community. Yet the African-American community was not there. Nope, I didn't hear the invitation to Power 88, you know, because if Power 88 is the mode and the method where black people get their information, why did Joan Ebert not invite her? I mean, them, the organization. I mean, the inability to engage in the NAACP and the Black Caucus with the vet, whatever her name is. I think her name is Williams. I don't want to give her a wrong name. But the deal is, is that real, I had an opportunity to participate in one of the, you know, um, webinars where the superintendent of public education was there. And I was introduced as a member of the Black Caucus. But believe me, that's the only time she ever claimed me. And she claimed me without me even paying my dues again because I was so dismayed with the organization and the inability to participate. And you know what? I've thought about this a great deal this morning. And I'm going to tell you that this mentality of house and field Negro in America, or however you want to look at it, you know, blacks that are chosen and blacks that are just out there. And who are you, right? So uh, the chosen ones will not speak to the unchosen ones. They like to be recognized by the system. And they make it work for them because as long as they're making it work for them, the system is so happy. But what about the rest of the folks? I heard a young man talking from Chicago about this recent incident. This weekend, March 15th. The weekend prior to proceeding, right? Before how there was a house party and our young folks was in there, but some young folks came strapped. They didn't even know the folks. Somebody seen somebody, woman with somebody else or something happened up in there where miscommunication happened. And 15 people were injured and two people lost their lives. When I'm gonna tell you one thing that we all need to get a clue on, especially people who are coming from my community, people who look like me. I'm African-American. I'm 62. I raised three young men and they all have very effective communication skills. Even the one that they said was in the spectrum and had no language skills initially, but during the process of the IEP process, developed great communication skills, great communication skills. I didn't say he he didn't get great social skills. He got great communication skills. He's an effective communicator. Now, many, many, many people are not effective in communication. That's why we have so much chaos in our society, because we have a failed public education system, and it's being administered by politicians. And quite frankly, that's the one piece of the government that should have never been political that has become political. So here in Nevada, where the Republicans were ruling for so long until they went purple and then they went blue. And after that, you know, they're still working on trying to bring equity and access to the people. But I'm going to tell you right now, 
the inability to engage in public process, public policy, how things are happening, come from, you're not one of us, and I'm not one of them. And that's so true. But what I am is an American citizen, born in Mississippi, Columbus, you might understand where I'm coming from. As my grandfather, Pete Thomas, worked on whatever, the underground movement of blacks who have been oppressed by local community members, and they would get black folks out of town. That's what my grandfather did. And also he built houses. My grandfather built lots of houses and he trained people how to build houses and with a third grade education. And he had effective communication skills. And that came from within my people's generation. No, knowledge, abilities, structured in the DNA. So I want to ensure that you understand in 2021, change only comes with people like you and perhaps like me. The reality is, is if if we continue to accept that we have no choice and we are so vulnerable, (laughs) that's what it's going to be. People will continue to set rules and apply policies that affect you and affect your ability to engage in the process because they're controlling everything. And you better understand what I'm talking about. We're only talking about money because public policy is money. So the dollars that a state would receive from the federal government come from the counts of the people who are impacted by the, you know, the reality reality of the aligned services that are coming with a free and appropriate public education. That's education. Everything begins with education because we have to have buildings. We have to have services. We have to have everything to be able to produce quality services. And we have to meet the standard of a free and appropriate public education for all. But when you go about setting rules that would promote oppression within a subgroup of people and they have no ability to transition forward simply because unless they got a skill or talent like Beyonce and but understand Beyonce is almost untouchable because she can share a message in her music that makes her so powerful because she's engaging everyone and she's so beautiful my god that is a beautiful woman and understand their relationship with prince and how prince perhaps shared a little too much and then put himself in jeopardy because he didn't have the protection of the community just as Michael had no protection of the community. And we used to be a nation in which Malcolm X was engaging in the mindsets of folks. And they could understand because you know what? I'm really just talking about the flow. And I understand it. Others do too. But when we look at television, we understand what Dick Gregory said, tell lie, vision. So the vision it's telling you is not a reality. 
And so many times the dysfunctionalness of all that's going on. And it's so real. So let's get back to public education and how it's affecting criminal behavior in the lowest um, achieving communities in the United States of America. This is all across the United States, wherever there are large masses of poverty of people, people in poverty, as they are unskilled and do not have effective communication skills and cannot access the system because they cannot get engaged. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because if you don't start school until you're seven, you're always going to be a problem because you're not prepared unless someone prepares you prior to that. But for the most time, you know, public services here in Nevada are like the nutshell game. You can't find them. They don't exist. Not for people in poverty. No, not when they can take and go upwards of 28% of the poverty, you know, line and bring their folks in to receive the services because your folks never just shut up. They just don't show up. And like I said, how is it that the superintendent of public instruction can't find African-American community members to engage in this conference that they had on March the 3rd in regards to the disparate impact of the services that are happening for not all children, you know? (laughs) And they're not all talking about it because even at the school site, they don't have a, a way to bring in everyone. And the principal and one teacher can get rid of your child. That's a violation of federal due process rights, as every child has a right to have effective access. I mean, you know, I mean, the analyzations and all the tools that are available to the public system to engage your child, to make sure that your child's learning. And the tools do exist. My son, they said he was severely mentally retarded, communication handicapped. And I said, okay, well, that's what you're saying. (laughs) We'll see. So we started where we had to start because he wasn't talking. He did not have language. At three years old, he wasn't talking. All my other children talked before one. I hate to tell you. So I knew that there was something there. And I I also realized that his facial, he never just one monotone face. And then I started to do things to make him engage. But I realized these things as a parent and had prior parent. And I did a lot, but I went back to school with my son and he graduated with a one-on-one aid a laptop, and above proficient. I had the support of Michael Rosenberg. He was a state disabilities counselor for Area Board 3. And really, he came to all of Tyler's IEPs from the moment that, you know, I realized he was disabled. And I'm going to tell you, the journey has been amazing when you understand who you are and understand your ability to transition and watch your child come alive. Because this is America, where we are all free. But you are only free when you understand that freedom requires that you engage in the process. And this dysfunction that's going on in Nevada, and the inability, and the people who would represent the black folks, who won't talk to black folks because they feel some kind of intimidation or something, maybe because they just lack a little bit of knowledge. 
And guess what? It's overwhelming because they're just in the position. They're just representing. They can't grasp that. But they, what else they can't grasp is that they need to allow the community to organize, to bring the problems to, you know, the system. And when you're in the system, you understand what you need to be empowered. But when you don't understand what you need, you don't utilize your community effectively. You don't organize your community. You don't have your community showing up at the meetings. You don't demand accountability. Well, what can I say? I'm confused. Please, I'm going to drag this meeting from March the 3rd and share it with my morning videos until we can get some morning conversation going on here because this is dysfunctional to me that no black organizations, no black churches, nobody was in the house to talk about the failed services for African-American children in the state of Nevada and most African-American children, more than 50% are on the bottom, on the bottom bottom. And we have 80% incarceration rate. And they're mailing, they're shipping African-American men out and they're removing them from homes and finding them incompetent with no physical data. No, I mean, no, no analysis, no, with all the tools that are provided to the educational system to analyze a child's development, these people are being removed from placement without effective analysis and services for them to determine what kind of services that they would need. So when they're getting the next placement, they ain't getting nothing but some social and emotional learning. What the hell is that? I'm confused. We don't pay money for social and emotional learning. No, we pay for access. And social and emotional learning is not going to get you access. So good morning, America. I'll say it's time to wake up. It's a frustrating day after listening to the whole conference that they had on March 3rd and know that there's going to be another conference webinar about disparate impact and the failed services in the black community. I hope black people, I hope formerly enslaved, I hope folks of color actually show up this time because access has to do with ability to access and engage one's mind. So I'll say good morning. And I'm saying I'm going to help. I'm going to have a better day. And I'm going to say I hope you do too. So in 2021, this is Darlene Anderson. And you know, it feels like the year 2525 because it, it just feels like I'm alive, but it doesn't feel like I'm alive. You know, when I filed a complaint, and I filed more than one against Clark County School District, they never responded. They responded with, they don't have to because of we the people thing. They got a we the people policy and I'm not part of that. We the people, you get me? And I'm not part of that we the people when I look at the NAACP, no. I went for a whole year, I went to their meetings, just as in Sacramento. But the people who are aligned to be engaged with the people don't want to talk to you. They have clicks, and they only socialize within themselves. That's how come they can look at all the dysfunction and failed services in our local communities and act like the white folks or the system and ignore it. That's why they can see that children are suffering in the public school systems when eight-year-old children would commit suicide and they would act like it's not, it's so overwhelming. How is it 
that that situation, that circumstance is so overwhelming for a national organization. And then for to have the wonderful opportunity. I was so excited to participate in the online organization of the LDA, Learning Disabled Whatever, uh, attempting to think about establishing this conversation about, uh, because see, they don't protect uh, learning disabled children's rights here. No, they don't have SELPAs. No, they don't have, you know, in Sacramento, every county had a SELPA and they, and the board members signed on the SELPA and talked about all the services that would be entitled to a child with a disability, which came under the law in IDA 2004. But I guess if you just don't follow the law and you don't follow the rules, you wouldn't understand what I'm saying. So I'm going to tell you, it requires more than one principal, which the legislators have written, and one teacher to move a child out of a school. Oh, that's so criminal. But I guess if you don't understand what criminal behavior is because you've been a we the papal state, you know, so Republican, huh? and you've seen everything as resources and allocations. So you put children on buses and bus them where your parents can't participate in the education and they fail. And then you push them out of the public school system at 11 and then you use the judicial system. How disgusting. You use the judicial system to create incompetencies. And you say the child is not competent and can't make decisions. And then you take them and put them under the jurisdiction of the Department of Health and Human Services. And then you shit them out like selling slaves on the block. And that's what it means to me. And I'm going to tell you, I am so pissed this morning. I'm going to have to stop and say, tune in on my other shows on Anchor. Have a great day.